All you have to do is go outside your door, take a look up at the sky, and see how magnificent and wonderful the God is that we worship and serve. And yet all too often we're, we fall into this trap where all we're looking up to see in the sky is whether or not it's going to rain today. Isaiah writes, haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world even began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people are like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, Not a single one is ever missing. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Because of these verses and so many more, because of what you've already experienced in worship this morning, I submit to us all that our God is most definitely worthy of our awe and our reverence. Because he is sovereign, because of everything that he already has done, because of everything that he continues to do. Some of you here know Carlos and Marjorie Garcia, they're church members here. Carlos recently had to undergo back surgery. The discs in his lower back were all shot, and so they went in to place some, what the doctor called, baskets some sort of spacers, and they made three vertical incisions in his back to put these in and put the screws in. Well, the surgery went well initially, and everything looked good, and he spent two or three days in the hospital, and then they transferred him to a rehab center. Wasn't really concerned, he was having a little trouble with his feet, but everything looked good until one night he just started feeling poorly. They initially thought there was an infection in the incisions, and so they took him back to the emergency room, And while he was there, Carlos had a surreal experience. And the things that he experienced and the things that he saw, the doctor later confirmed, all that happened, Carlos. He said, but I want you to understand, there was no infection in the incision. But they did find a blood clot in his lung. The doctor said, if you weren't here, you wouldn't be here. So you see, God watched over him. God protected him. Because he is sovereign, God watched out for him. Now, the dictionary I don't think always gets words exactly right, but I love the definition of the word awe. It says it's a mixed feeling of reverence, fear, and wonder caused by something majestic or sacred. This refers to a feeling of fearful or profound respect or wonder inspired by greatness, superiority, and grandeur of a person or thing and suggests an immobilizing effect. And so I read that definition. The first thing that popped in my mind were the lyrics to Mercy Me's song, I Can Only Imagine. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, as what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? 
I think I know what I'm going to be doing. And that's lying face down, unable to look up because of God's greatness. The problem, though, is that here and now, we've allowed the cares and the problems of the world to dull our senses and our sensitivity to our God. You see, the world, the modern world, comes at us 24-7 with a kaleidoscope of sight and sound. And I believe that at least some of this is a tool of the enemy. I believe that he uses a lot of things that are not of themselves illegal, unethical, or immoral, but he uses them in such a way to keep us so busy, and the end result is less, much less of a focus, and much, much less dependence on this holy and righteous God. Now, while that's true, none of it changes the fact that as we look around us, as we read the scriptures, as God impresses upon us, our responsibility to God is to acknowledge him and respond in obedience. God demands, God expects, first and foremost, obedience in our lives. Notice what he writes in Deuteronomy. Now search all of history from the time God created people on the earth until right now. And search from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything as great as this ever been seen or heard before? Has any nation ever heard the voice of God speaking from fire as you did and survived? Has any other God dared to take a nation for himself out of another nation by means of trials, miraculous signs, wonders, war, a strong hand, a powerful arm, and terrifying acts? Yet that is exactly what the Lord your God did for you in Egypt right before your very eyes. He showed you these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so he could instruct you. He let you see his great fire here on earth so that he could speak to you from it. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose to bless their descendants. And he personally brought you out of Egypt with a great display of power. He drove out nations far greater than you so that he could bring you in and give you their land as your special possession as it is today. So remember this. Keep it firmly in your mind. The Lord is God both in heaven and on earth, and there is no other. If you obey all the decrees and commands I'm giving you today, all will be well with you and your children. Now, again, the problem we face is that over the last few years, especially in our culture, we have become increasingly dependent on a visual orientation. Advertising blitzes on television, on billboards everywhere you turn, on print publications have created an instant recognition of symbols and logos that have had a powerful impact and continue to have a powerful impact in people's lives. They leave us with impressions that often run far deeper than we realize. Advertisers know the power of corporate logos. In spite of his recent negative press, it's still worth millions for Nike, for Tiger Woods to use their products with this swoosh symbol on it. Then there are things that have greater depth and meaning that use this same approach. The unfurling of the flag and and the, the symbol of our American bird can often bring a crowd to attention and bring tears to the eyes of veterans. The Muslim crescent, the Jewish star of David, and of course, the cross of Jesus Christ 
symbolize the three major world religions and the powerful impact and feeling that their symbols can generate in people. For many Americans, pictures like the U.S. Capitol or the White House can stir passion and patriotism in them. Many corporations depend on a well-recognizable logo as they battle for market supremacy. Then there's a logo that symbolizes the pride and expectations of an entire region of this country. (laughs) As well as their collective fears and pain. Now this morning I want us all to understand that the Bible, God's holy righteous word, has plenty of visual aids, if you will, that God wants to use to instruct us in what it means to fear him and to follow the Lord on an everyday basis. But hear me, church, we must tune ourselves in to the significance of these symbols, just like the ones I put up here today, familiar to most every one of you, and what they generated in your mind and and what you associated them with. I believe it's God's intention that these biblical symbols would encourage us in the relationship that God desires to have with us as it is his will that we all present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. I'd like to see each and every one of us fix firmly in our memory the images that God has recorded in his word so that whenever we see these objects, we'll remember what they signify. Here at Florida Bible Church, Generally, on the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion. And as we do, you'll hold in your hand two visual reminders of this celebration. The Bible says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. As we celebrate Christ's death, it's not because we're a bunch of masochists. It's because the death of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, represents God's gift to mankind in that Jesus Christ died and paid for the sins of the entire world. A Sunday school teacher one Sunday morning was um, quizzing her class, and she said, class, if I were to sell my car and my house and everything in my house and give all that money to the church, could I go to heaven? They all responded in unison, no! Well, how about if I come to the church every single day and I clean the sanctuary and I vacuum the carpet, I clean the bathrooms, I cut the grass, and I make the church beautiful. Do you think God then would let me into heaven? Again in unison, no! Well, what then do I need to do? Little boy yelled out, you gotta be dead! (laughs) Well, he was partly right. You see, the truth is, and here at Florida Bible in the last two weeks, We've held memorial services for two dear saints who went home to be with the Lord. Because the Bible teaches us that when this physical body wears out, our soul and spirit, the true essence of who and what we are, at that very moment will be separated and will arrive at an eternal destination that we have already predetermined. You see, the Bible says that God is perfect and we fall far short of that perfection. The truth is, all of the disobedient choices, the willful choices that we make, create a a gulf, a chasm, if you will, between us and God. And there's no amount of good works, like that teacher tried to impress upon her class, there's no amount of good works that can ever bridge that gulf that I myself have created. The truth is, I keep making it bigger every single day. The Bible says that God so loved us 
that he gave his only son. In fact, in Romans 5.8, the Bible says that God directed his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not say, clean up your act, stop doing this, stop doing that, then come and see me. No, God says, my son paid for your sin and I offer your salvation as a gift. All you have to do is accept it. No strings attached. It's yours, I'll save you. But pastor, what about all those other things in the Bible? What about the things you're talking about this morning? What about those verses I just heard? Well, you see, the truth is, when I trusted Christ as my Savior, Ephesians 1, the Bible says that God adopted me then as a son. Now I'm part of the family. Now there are responsibilities, most assuredly. The next time you grab a towel, I pray that we all might think of the Lord Jesus Christ on his knees submitting himself to the needs of his disciples and washing their dirty feet. The next time you hear a trumpet blast or a trumpet play, be reminded of Gideon's trumpet and and our dependence on the Lord of hosts. In the same way that a logo must stand for a company or a product, these biblical images should remind us of the blessings that God has given and continues to give us. And, most definitely, his expectation of our worship and obedience. Now, unfortunately, as we humans are prone to do, sometimes people go overboard. Though extremely beautiful, oftentimes cathedrals like this draw attention to the architect. They draw attention to the religion. They draw attention to what goes on there. They do not, unfortunately, many times, draw attention to God. People have created religious signs, symbols, and even icons that you can buy, and that's not what God intended. You see, biblical images are meant to serve as object lessons for instruction rather than objects of devotion. They remain very ordinary. They they retain their earthiness and they draw attention to a way of living for God in our everyday ordinary lives. I believe they help to define the character of what Christian discipleship is all about. And so God warns us. Notice what he says in Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. You saw for yourselves that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me. Notice what he says. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural, uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. You see, again, biblical images are typically found outside the church. In everyday, ordinary life, in the world of work and family. They're not easily transformed into works of art. They resist beautification and ornamentation because they're simple, ordinary objects that God used to make a point. I don't know of many people that are ever going to take aesthetic pride in a pile of rocks. Hey, come on in. Let me show you my lovely pile of rocks because that was what the altar is supposed to be. I don't know of anybody who's going to bow down in worship between, before a, a towel and a basin of water. A farmer's yoke or a rooster crowing repeatedly is not something you're generally going to find in the church sanctuary. And yet each of these biblical images offers a key insight into what it means to become a true servant of our God. Another great example is a shepherd's staff. You see, it's a simple wilderness tool. Every shepherd 
had one. So it generally wouldn't draw much attention. A staff was an all-purpose tool. I could use it as a weapon if I was fighting off robbers or wild animals. It's something I could use to extend my reach if there was something I couldn't grab. If one of my sheep maybe fell down into a crevice and I could reach down and gently pull him up. If I was hurting or I was tired, I could use it as a crutch. So it came in handy for, for a lot of things. It's a, a truly indispensable tool if you're going to be caught out in the, the wilderness with your sheep. But see, again, if we're not careful, we're going to pass over this biblical image without seeing its significance. It fits into the environment extremely well, so well that it's easy to take it for granted. And yet, the Lord God transformed this staff in the hand of his servant Moses into a powerful symbol of divine authority. Now, you go in the scriptures and you'll find that the life of Moses is so impactful and so full of significance that it's hard for many people, perhaps most of us, to imagine that we could possibly have anything at all in common with Moses until he opens his mouth. As soon as he starts to talk, he sounds just like most of us. To listen to the excuses that Moses offers up is to hear ourselves talking back to God. He doesn't say anything that most of us haven't said in some form or fashion probably many times over. Like Moses, oftentimes our minds run almost immediately to all the reasons why I cannot or should not trust God for not giving myself up as a living sacrifice. We can all relate to Moses. When God called him, he responded with at least five excuses, all of which, again, have been used by believers in one form or another for centuries. We'll take a closer look at them in just a moment. But first, I want to look at Moses' experience with his staff. See, God came to him and asked him, Moses, what's that in your hand? Now, God knew very well it was a shepherd's staff. God knew everything was going to happen. But God wanted Moses to focus on this object in his hand. Lord, this is my shepherd's staff. You know, it's a handy tool. I use it for a lot of things. It really comes in handy. Lord says, throw it on the ground. My staff? Yeah, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back. Many of us probably are going to run. Now, understand, this wasn't a little garter snake, okay? It was a big staff. I'm sure it was a big snake. Then the Lord told him, Moses, go over there and reach out and grab that snake by the tail. Lord, I'd rather you do it. (laughs) Moses just... Trust me here, pick up the snake. So he probably inched over very carefully, watching the head, and he picks the snake up by the tail, and it turned back into his staff. Now, the staff didn't change into a magic wand of any sort. It's still a staff. It was the God of molecular biology, the God of atomic energy, the sovereign God of the universe that changed that staff into a snake and then back into a staff. From that moment on, this staff is going to be a symbol of God's power because it was by this staff 
that God brought about the plagues to prove himself and the fact that the Israelites were his chosen people. And so under God's instruction, Moses stretched out his staff and rivers turned to blood. God gave Moses instruction. He stretched out his staff and thunder and lightning roared and hail beat on the nation of Egypt. He stretched out his staff and hundreds of thousands, probably millions of gnats rose up out of the dust and afflicted the Egyptians. He stretched it out again and hundreds of thousands, millions of frogs came and there were frogs everywhere. In your bed, in your cabinets, everywhere you turn, everywhere you step, there were frogs everywhere. Moses reached out the staff that God had instructed him to part of the Red Sea. And the Israelites walked through on dry ground and then he retreated the staff and the waters came back over the Egyptian army and wiped out that threat. When the Israelites in the desert got to a place called Rephidim, they were tired and dusty and thirsty and there wasn't any water. And the people started complaining and they got real nasty. And so Moses turned to God, God, what am I going to do? Moses, take your staff. Go out there and you see that rock? Strike that rock. Take the elders with you. Let everybody see it. And so Moses did as God commanded him and hit the rock. And God did as he promised and the water rushed out. While they were there at Rephidim, the Amalekites attacked. God sent Moses up on a hill. And as long as he held up the staff, the Israelites prevailed. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time. I can't really illustrate it. But as he stood there, his arm got tired. The staff started to fall. And the Amalekites started to prevail. So he's like, <laughs> finally got wise. Got a couple of guys to come and help hold it up. And the Israelites prevailed and won the battle. You see, the staff represented God's awesome power. It was not, nor did it ever become any sort of magic wand. It was still a shepherd's staff. Simple tool, carved out of simple earthy materials. But it represented God's people on the move, and it represented the power of their almighty God. When God asked Moses, Moses, what is that in your hand? He underscored a very, very, very important principle. And that is, God can and will take the mundane, ordinary stuff that makes up our lives and transform it for his honor and his glory. We are always going to remain ordinary, just like this staff. We can be broken easily, just like it did when I dropped it. But our God will accomplish his extraordinary will through us if we acknowledge him, if we are obedient to him. And that staff was a constant reminder to Moses that he was dependent on God's strength and God's power. You see, Moses was a man under orders. Whatever power he manifested was a power that came from God and that God working in his life. He didn't have any power of his own. The staff, again, was not a magic wand. It was just a shepherd's staff. And likewise, the staff was a reminder to all the people that it was God who was in charge, not Moses. I believe the Lord still takes what is close at hand and uses it to manifest his glory and his power. Instead of a staff today, God has given every believer in this dispensation the Holy Spirit, God's holy, righteous, indwelling power. It is a power that 
will enable us to have the victory no matter what the trial and tribulation may be, no matter what we're struggling with, if we're obedient, God the Holy Spirit is going to empower us to have the victories that God wants us to have. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray? First Thessalonians 5.17, God encourages and commands us, pray without ceasing, guys. Why? Because God is near us whenever we pray. Let me encourage you, and I mean this as an encouragement. When you're praying and you don't feel God is very close, you feel like God's a million miles away or your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, please understand, God hasn't gone anywhere. We have turned away in some way. We've been disobedient. We've done something that, I hope God isn't seeing what I'm doing. But God is sovereign. God already knows what we're going to do. Doesn't make it happen, but he already knows. And God desires of us obedience. Now, as I mentioned, the problem is, All of us can relate to the excuses that Moses brought up when God came to him and said, Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh that he needs to let my people go. So I'm going to look at him real quickly in closing. The first one, Lord, you got the wrong number. As soon as God said, Moses, the prince turned shepherd was ready to tell God to call another number. You've got the wrong number. Now, again, as I mentioned, Moses certainly wasn't the only one ever to use excuses like these. In fact, one Sunday morning, Henry awoke to find his wife standing over him, shaking him, telling him, Henry, get up. You got to get ready for church. I don't want to go to church, she said, and he pulled the covers over his head. So his wife stood there, crossing her arms, as wives are prone to do. She said, Henry, give me three good reasons why you shouldn't go to church. Covers came off. He said, all right, listen to me. First, I don't get anything out of the service. Secondly, I don't like the people there. Third, none of the people there like me. Now, you give me three good reasons why I should go to church. She said, all right. First, I guarantee you it will do you some good. Second, there are people there who really like you, and they're going to miss you if you're not there. Third, you're the pastor. Get up! (laughs) Moses was absolutely certain God had the wrong number. What could God possibly want from him? You see, the problem was Moses was so concerned with his little eye that he didn't hear the eye statements from God. He said, Moses... I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. And everything that had entailed, all of the miracles and, and all of the blessings and all the, everything that God had done in their lives, God said, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned with their suffering. And I am sending you to go and lead them out. I will be with you, was God's answer to Moses. I will be with you, is God's answer to every single one of us. No matter what the question is, no matter what the problem is, we live in perilous times. I understand that. You read Timothy, I believe we're living in the last days, and sad to say, I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but it's not going to get a whole lot better. 
But whatever the problem is, whatever the struggle is, God says, I will be with you. And that is, guys, that is the answer. It's going to take different forms. God may use something very simple, very functional, very ordinary as a means of blessing. God will use other people as a means of blessing or conviction or help or encouragement, whatever it is. But the answer is always the same. I will be with you. Moses' second excuse, let's talk about it, Lord. He said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and they ask me, who sent me? What is his name? What shall I tell them? You see, the problem is that all too often, we prefer to talk about God's will rather than to do God's will. We're all too ready to subject God's will to our hypothetical problems or issues. We don't witness to somebody because they might bring up a question that we can't answer. We don't take a stand for what God has laid out in his word because if somebody challenges us, we're afraid, I can't defend myself. Trust me, most people today are so biblically illiterate, you give them a few answers, they'll think you're a walking Bible encyclopedia. But again, it comes down to God says, I will be with you. So again, God's not buying this excuse. If ignorance was his problem, then God is perfectly willing and completely capable of giving him wisdom. If Moses had questions, if we have questions, God has all the answers. And God will always give us whatever it is that we need to obey his will. Third, Moses says, what if? He played the why try if you know it's going to fail card. You see, when God can't be refused, blame somebody else. We want to make our obedience contingent upon the untried response of people around us. But we need to be honest with ourselves. Since when does our obedience to God's will depend on other people's responses? It doesn't. I often encourage people in counseling, especially in marriage counseling, you need to understand something. The best you can hope for, even in a good, solid interpersonal relationship, is that you can in some way lovingly, positively, encouragingly influence that other person. Because the only person that any of us can control is the one that we see when we look in the mirror every single morning. And so it really doesn't matter what people are going to do. We can't control that. What we can control, though, is our obedience to God. Then Moses says, oh, woe is me. You see, he challenged God's command. He played ignorant. He blamed other people for how they might react. All of that failed to change God's mind, so Moses claimed incompetence. You see, he was implying that doing God's will required his ability and that success was dependent on him and what he could do. Lord, Lord, you know I'm not eloquent. Father, you know what? When I get nervous and I, I start speaking fast and then I start stuttering and people aren't going to understand me and they're going to look at me funny and then they're going to throw things at me. And Remember that doing God's will never ever depends on our skills. That's why God in this dispensation has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and his indwelling power. When WMC Radio was on the air, that little ditty used to play all the time. God doesn't call the qualified. 
He qualifies the call. From a human perspective, Moses wasn't really qualified. You'd probably, if you're looking for somebody to be CEO of the nation of Israel, you'd probably pick somebody else. And yet God said, Moses, I'm going to empower you because, first of all, Moses, I want you and I want all the Israelites to understand that I am God, that it is I who am bringing you out of the nation of Egypt. I will free you from the clutches of Pharaoh. I am the one who will bring you into a land that I have given you for you and your children forever. And then he said, Lord, can't you find somebody else? You see, Moses had finally arrived at the bottom line. In spite of God's call, God's backing, and God's power, Moses was afraid. Two friends were sitting around at lunch one day and discussing religion, and the first one said to the other, you know, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, and injustice in the world when he could do something about it. His friend looked at him and said, well, why don't you? And the first man said, I'm afraid he'll ask me the same question. The truth is, and you can see evidence of it every single day, we human beings are capable of the most amazing feats of self-discipline. And we often will take great risk for relatively insignificant causes. We'll devote ourselves to our goals at the expense of time, money, and family. We'll eagerly give up a lot for the sake of our pursuits and our goals. I'm not being critical, but if you're much of a, an Olympic fan, the Olympics are going to be beginning in next week or so. And you're going to see center stage some young men and young women who have dedicated hours upon hours and sacrificed a great deal to get where they are to hopefully win that gold medal. We can do tremendous things like that. Why not, church, why not put our energy and our passion into our service to our awesome God? Deuteronomy 4, 9, the Lord says, only be careful and watch yourselves so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. You see, God warns us, guys, it's critically important that we keep clearly fixed in our mind the sovereign God of the universe, the God that we say that we're worshiping when we come here to church, but the God that we should worship every single day through our obedience to his commands, through our allowing God to use us to have a positive impact in the lives of people around us. We have that opportunity every single day, and God guarantees to use us and the simple things of the world to have a profound impact on our world. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, in just a moment, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. But before I do, I'd like to provide both an opportunity and a challenge to anybody here. Maybe you're a visitor, first time here. Maybe you've been here before. But as you sit here this morning, you are not absolutely positively certain of your relationship to God. You are not absolutely positively certain that when your physical life ends, that your soul and spirit will arrive in heaven to be with God forever. And so I want to challenge you. I want to give you this opportunity in the quietness of your mind, shutting out everyone and everything around you to focus on the most critical question 
you will ever answer, and that is, where am I going to spend eternity? Let me remind you again that God knows the same thing that we know. We are not perfect. And you see, to get into heaven, God requires perfection. But as I mentioned, since none of us can get there, God in his mercy, God in his grace, sent his only son, who died on that cross, shed his perfect, precious blood, and completely washed away the penalty for our sins. And God offers that as a gift. There are no strings attached. All you have to do is reach out and accept it, and God will save you. I often get asked, Pastor, but, well, what about all those things written in the Bible, and what about all those things I'm supposed to do? Please understand. The Bible says that the moment that I receive the gift that God offers, that God then adopts me as his child. Then, yes, there are lots of family responsibilities. But to become part of the family and to ensure my eternal destination, God says you can't earn it, buy it, inherit it. It's a gift that I'm giving to you for free. All you have to do is accept it. So in just a moment, I'm going to pause and I'll be praying. And as I do, my encouragement to you, just talk to God. Because that's all prayer is. Perhaps tell him something like this. God, I really don't understand all this, but... But I know I'm not perfect, that I'm a sinner. And so I will accept the gift that you're offering, believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he died and paid for my sins. And God guarantees to save you right where you sit. Then you too can lay hold of the promise in Scripture. 1 John 5.13, These things have I written to those of you that believe on the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, not hope or guess or wish, you may know, be absolutely certain, you have eternal life. Because that's based on God's guarantee. In John 10, 28, Jesus himself said, I'm going to give you eternal life and you will never perish because no one, no one can pluck you out of my hand. It's a gift God offers freely. Why not take God at his word as we pray? Father, I thank you for this time that we've gathered to worship. Father, I pray that each and every one of us have had our focus resharpened to the realities of life in this world. Father, a life that should revolve around you. Lord, that we understand that as we obey you, as we seek your will and your guidance, that we are truly worshiping you. That worship should be 24 Seven, as long as we're awake, Father, that we are focused on your will for us in every single situation. Lord, when there are problems or questions, that we remember that the answer is always that you will be with us. Lord, I pray that not a single person leave here today not being absolutely certain of their eternal destiny. I pray, Lord, if they have questions, they'll come and see me or one of our deacons or elders. Lord, that we can simply share with them the truth of your word. And Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that even in the sadness of the loss of fellowship, that these two dear brothers who have left this earth, we are absolutely confident are at fellowship with you because they both received this gift for themselves. Father, we pray for our church family, for many who are struggling 
that they would look to you to meet those very special needs. Again, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to fellowship and worship together. For it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to be dismissed. I think I hear it pouring rain, so you don't have to worry about it too much. But uh, if you're here this morning and you made that decision, I'd like to ask you to do something for me. On the connection card, you'll see a box you can check off, my decision today to accept Christ as Savior. I'd like to send you a little booklet. I promise I won't sell your name to a telemarketer. This little booklet will just explain again what I went through and how you can be absolutely certain of your eternal destiny based on what God has guaranteed in his word. So just fill out the card, check that off, make sure your address is correct, and we'll send that to you. Again, if you're a guest here for the first time this morning, take that card out to the connection station. We've got a little gift, a Starbucks card we'd like to give to you as a, just a token of remembrance of the time that you spent with us, and we would encourage you to come back. Uh, pray for Pastor Pete as he continues his sabbatical. Been interrupted a few times. But uh, just pray for him and the time that he has away. And uh, pray for uh, Brother Eric Aponte. He hurt his back somehow yesterday, helping to put the chairs down. So just pray for him. Those of you who can stay, uh, we'd appreciate it. Uh, Again, the chairs just need to go up and to the sides. You don't have to take them out and put them in the room. All right, don't forget everything going on this next week. And make make a choice to be a blessing in somebody's life this week. Let's all stand. We'll have a word of prayer. As you leave for our church family, don't forget... Our responsibility is this ministry that we've chosen to be a part of, the giving kiosk are backed by all the exits. Again, if you're a visitor, we're not looking to take anything from you. This is the opportunity for our church family to continue to worship through our giving. Father, we thank you so very much once again for the opportunity to have shared fellowship together. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here. Pray your very special blessing on them. Lord, you know what each and every person is going through. You know what we are all struggling with. I pray for those in our church family that are struggling financially, that you might open doors. And and Lord, as you continue that path, that you um, meet their needs in a very, very special way. For those who are struggling physically, we pray for strength. We pray for comfort. We ask for healing, if that be your will. For those who are struggling relationally, Lord, once again, I promise, I pray that they will look to the promises of your word to understand the direction that they should go in. So again, Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Pray that you take everyone home in safety on the wet streets. Lord, help us to be a blessing in the lives of someone this week. For it is in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.